Well, I think it's it's stunning, uh, not just the immediate result, the overturning of Roe, which I honestly never thought I would see happen in my lifetime as a lawyer, but also uh, the jurisprudence behind it. And uh, jurisprudence is a fancy word, but I mean the the legal philosophy, the approach to the Constitution uh, that lays behind it. Uh, so it it is, of course, enormously disruptive to women across the nation. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Are the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court just politicians in robes? That's the question being asked by many Supreme Court observers and even hinted at by some of its own dissenting justices after the court issued a series of blockbuster decisions that marked it as the most conservative Supreme Court in over a century. In the last month, the court struck down the constitutional right to abortion, weakened the government's ability to address climate change, undermined gun regulations, and enabled public funding of religious schools in a case that will have a direct impact on Vermont. For perspective on the dramatic rightward lurch of the court, I turned to Rod Smola, who's been analyzing and arguing before the Supreme Court for decades. On July 1st, Rod Smola became the inaugural president of the newly renamed Vermont Law and Graduate School, formerly the Vermont Law School. A longtime constitutional law professor and civil liberties litigator, Smola has participated in a number of famous First Amendment cases, including Hustler v. Falwell, which was the subject of the Hollywood movie The People vs. Larry Flint. He is the author of a textbook on defamation and over a hundred articles. Prior to coming to Vermont, Smola was dean and professor of law at Widener University Delaware Law School, and he previously served as president of Furman University and was dean of the law schools at Washington and Lee University and at University of Richmond. I began by asking Rod Smola his thoughts on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Well, I think it's it's stunning, uh, not just the immediate result, the overturning of Roe, which I honestly never thought I would see happen in my lifetime as a lawyer, but also uh, the jurisprudence behind it. And uh, jurisprudence is a fancy word, but I mean the the legal philosophy, the approach to the Constitution uh, that lays behind it. Uh, so it it is, of course, enormously disruptive uh, to women across the nation that are now going to be severely hampered in those states that have immediately banned abortion. So there's the enormous disruption factor. Uh, but for me, it, it's deeper than that. It is the willingness to overturn such a, a settled canonical precedent uh, and to do it so quickly once there was a solid five justice conservative majority uh, to, to do it in the face of all of these various statements that some of the more recent appointees made that seemed to signal that they had respect for settled precedents such as that under the, the doctrine of stare decisis and other fancy legal words that people started to learn a lot more about in the last few weeks. Uh, for all of those reasons, uh, 
an, an extraordinary moment in the history of constitutional law. And, uh, and for me, for me, a disappointing one, not just because of the immediate results, but because of the uh, uh, overall approach of this court, which we'll get into when we talk about some of these other cases as well, which is to really tie modern constitutional law to what those who wrote the provisions would have done at the time they were written. And that turns out to be two different time periods, 1791 when the Bill of Rights was originally created and, and enacted, and then 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War. And if you do it that way, if you, if you approach the Constitution that way, of course, you're going to decide that uh, oh, there's no right to abortion and there's no right to a lot of things. Um, but it, in my view, that's not the best way to approach constitutional law. It's, it's not the modern approach that justices, both on the left and the right, have often applied. And I think, uh, for me, a, a disappointment and and I've said the word a few times, a stunning disappointment. It's a remarkable idea. And this is the so-called originalist uh, approach that we often hear spoken of in Supreme Court confirmation hearings, that uh, the Constitution does not evolve and live and breathe according to the times. Uh, it's stuck back in this, you know, I, I, not quite medieval era, but uh, a heck of a long time ago when women didn't even have the right to vote or have any say in the formation sure. of laws. How does that make any sense in any area of scholarship that we revert backwards 200 years as our North Star? So what originalists would say is that a written text such as a provision in the Constitution or a law passed by Congress or a law passed by the Vermont legislature uh, has no meaning and has no legitimacy unless it is interpreted as those who wrote it intended. And that the, in a democracy, the way things get changed, including the way things get changed under our constitutional system is through a constitutional amendment. You're not allowed to just make things up as you go along because your values change or your sensibilities change. That, that's the originalist position. Now, it is possible to be an originalist, but still understand that outcomes may evolve. And I'll give you a couple of good examples. Uh, probably the most powerful example is same-sex marriage where Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the opinion for the court, and Justice Anthony Kennedy, remember, a Republican conservative, although a more moderate conservative, a more centrist conservative, in that same-sex marriage decision, he said it's in the nature, it's the nature of injustice that we don't always perceive it in our own times. And other conservative justices, including people like the late uh, Justice Scalia or one of the new conservative justices, Neil Gorsuch, at times I think have gotten it right when they said when they have said it's not the conception that matters. I'm going to get a little deep here in the words I use, but it's not the conception that those who wrote the text um, had in their minds that matters. It's the concept they created. 
So they may have had a they may have had their own views as to what freedom of speech meant, and they may have been much more limited. But they created a concept called freedom of speech, and future generations have the right to understand what that means. They may have created the uh, concept of equality, but been blind to all forms of inequality, like gender discrimination or or sexual orientation discrimination, and. Uh, I'll give you one example where I think the conservative court got it right not long ago. Um, it was just from a couple of terms ago in which the court dealt with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So it wasn't a constitutional case, it was a statutory case. And the issue was whether the prohibition on discrimination based on sex includes a prohibition on discrimination based on sexual orientation, such as whether one is gay or lesbian or transgender. And Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion for the court said, yes, it does. And he said, I understand that in 1964, the people that wrote this law never dreamed it would be used to protect gays and lesbians and transgender persons. They were prejudiced against those persons. It was a crime to be homosexual in most places in the United States. But the words they used, the concept they used was you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And when you discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, you are discriminating on the basis of sex. They didn't understand it, but that's what it meant. And you could have you could easily have applied that same sort of thinking to something like Roe v. Wade and the right to privacy. Let me get your take on, uh, you know, one of the things that the dissenting justices wrote in the Roe case or the Dobbs case uh, is, quote, the majority has overruled Roe and Casey for one and only one reason, because it has always despised them, and now it has the votes to discard them. The majority thereby substitutes a rule by judges for the rule of law, close quote. Um, Rod, does are we now at a moment where the Supreme Court has lapsed into simply being politicians in robes? I think that we're perilously close to that. Of course, conservative voices will say what goes around comes around. And you liberals that created a lot of these rules, you were doing the same thing. And so each side is going to make the same charge against the other side. I think what causes me to find the dissenting observation persuasive is that the one thing that stands uh, in between a notion that judges are just politicians as opposed to people trying to interpret the law is that legal interpretation involves respect for precedent and involves um, respect for the reasoning of prior courts. And many famous Supreme Court justices over the years have said, if I had been on the court back when this issue was decided, I wouldn't have voted for this. But now it's been part of our law. And even though I wouldn't have voted for it, then I'm going to respect it now and apply it now. Now, they may trim it a bit. They may make adjustments, but they respect the underlying principle. And, and one other quick point, David, on this is you you will remember that in the majority opinion written by Justice Toledo, he goes to great pains to list all the famous cases that have overruled prior cases. 
And of course he does that to attempt to legitimize the idea that we can always overrule things if we realize we were wrong. But as others have pointed out, and, and I'll reemphasize now, those were all cases in almost every instance in which the court had previously been very um, unwilling to do justice, unwilling to recognize a constitutional right. And then it realized it had been wrong and, and that it should have recognized the right. And it was, so it was, a, they were progressive overrules. Of course, the most famous in American history, Brown versus the Board of Education, overruling the evil separate but equal doctrine um, from Plessy versus Ferguson. So it's fine to say we don't respect stereotypes when we realize we failed to recognize appropriately a constitutional right. It's quite a different business to take away one. And I think the dissents were exactly on point. You've never liked Roe. You were always skeptical. You hated it when it was decided in 1972. It's been a crusade of many to overturn it ever since. And you finally got it done because you finally got the, the majority you needed. And of course, it's worth pointing out again, if you look at polling, uh, while Roe has always been controversial, it's generally had a solid majority of pe people in the United States that think there should be some form. Yeah, of about 70 percent. Uh, yeah, about 70 percent. And, you know, even one, you know, Chief Justice Roberts tried to be a moderating influence and he may have had a roadmap that would have put American law closer in alignment with what you see in many other countries, particularly in Western Europe, where there is a, a right to abortion in the early stages of pregnancy, in the first trimester, the first 14, 15 weeks, um, but not thereafter. A, a, lot of, a lot of European nations do that. And even though that would have made a lot of people mad, it still would have preserved a fair amount of the most important part of Roe, because the truth is something like 95% of all abortions are already done in that first trimester. And so that would have been a reasonable, you know, compromise. It would have made um, pro-choice folks unhappy, but it wouldn't, wouldn't have been the devastating um, decision that we, we've just seen come down. So there are a number of other cases, and we don't have time to go through each of them, but there was uh, the the decision to overrule the New York State gun control law, a decision to strike down the ability of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and another eroding the firewall between schools and religion uh, in the paying of tuition in Maine, which will have a very direct impact on Vermont, it sounds like. So... Um, out of this grab bag, I, I'm going to give you dealer's choice here. What well, me, concerns yeah. you the most? So, he, he, so let, let me say, uh, I know we only have about five minutes. Well, here's, here, here's what I'll say. They're all of a piece, and they all follow the same pattern that we just saw. And so uh, take the Second Amendment case, which I think, by the way, the original decision saying that there is an individual right to bear arms, the Heller case that came out of Washington, D.C., in my view itself was wrong. I, I'm quite confident that a real originist, originalist that was being faithful to the original understanding of the Second Amendment would have understood it was only there to give the states the right to keep their militias, to keep their, their national guards, uh, so that you could bring, you could call to arms against invasion if the federal government ever invaded the state. There's no question in my mind that's what was intended. Um, but what 
matters most in all of these decisions is a rebellion against um, any kind of uh, judicial interpretation that does anything other than look back at history. And so in the Second Amendment case, uh, it's, it's become a very barren landscape in terms of what lower court judges will be able to do. They'll have to look back 200 years and see if the kind of modern restriction that is being imposed by a modern state um, has some analog to something that would have been done 200 years ago. That's an almost impossible task, and it's very, very retro. I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing we were talking about. It ties the Second Amendment to a very different time in our history, a, a wildly different time um, in, in terms of uh, how, how populated and, and complex society was. Um, and the EPA ruling, you may think, well, that this seems to be completely different than all of this, but in a way it's similar. It, it, it's saying um, everything's gotta be tied to what Congress enacts. If, if, if you're gonna do anything serious to protect the environment, Congress gotta, has gotta spell it out in detail it can't delegate discretion to an administrative agency. Um, and that will inevitably be very damaging because we know in our modern politics, it's almost impossible to get a political consensus on anything. And if you can agree on something general like clean air, but then give the agency the ability to enforce it, then you have a chance of actually protecting the environment. If you've got to get in this day and age, 60 senators to agree on any provision, uh, forget about it and, and forget about it if they're not of the same party as the House and, and the president. So all of these cases have this sort of similar retrograde uh, approach. And uh, I think it's gonna be divisive and, and, and very damaging to the country. You have uh, come up in your career, you've um, been distinguished in a particular around First Amendment and civil liberties law. Um, talk about uh, your own experience with that. You've had some well-known, well-publicized cases uh, working with Larry Flint and the Hustler magazine legal team in their lawsuit that later became a movie. Maybe just uh, give us insight into your role in that and what was the issue at stake there and um as as you've pointed out you know this was a publication that was easy to dislike uh flint was a very controversial character um but you stepped in on that tell us why so uh, this was a case in which hustler magazine um ran a very devastating mock satiric advertisement depicting Jerry Falwell, the famous conservative televangelist of um, apparently uh, being a, uh, a, a, a messenger advertising Campari liqueur. But in reality, it was a very gross uh, sexual joke in which he was depicted as having sex with his mother in an outhouse. Um, pretty mean stuff, pretty rough stuff. Nothing I would ever say about anybody, even, even in joking, to be honest. But it was obviously a joke. It was a parody. It was, you know, it, it wasn't sublime humor, but it was, it was uh, definitely aimed at um, 
at deflating Reverend Falwell in the very crude way that somebody like Larry Flint might do. And so um, Falwell sued Flint and won. And I got involved in the case because it seemed to me that if you could sue somebody and win because they've inflicted severe emotional distress upon you by making you uh, the object of a crude joke, then a large part of American drama, comedy, satire would be unprotected under the First Amendment. Now, you might be thinking, well, why not, why not say he, sh he should be able to sue for defamation? Because, uh, gosh, he was lied about. He didn't have sex with his mother in an outhouse. And the answer is, yeah, he didn't. But the ad didn't really communicate that he did. Everybody knew that it was a joke, that it was a, that it was a parody. It wasn't to be taken seriously, that it had really happened. And so I kind of went on a bit of a crusade and uh, was a part of a, a bunch of folks that rallied mainstream news organizations like um, like uh, the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, various networks, uh, the people that uh, did things like Saturday Night Live, satirists, and uh, a whole consort of mainstream voices in the United States urged the Supreme Court to say, you've got to protect this speech. It may not be your cup of tea, uh, but you got to protect it. Otherwise, anytime someone is the victim of a crude joke or a vicious uh, comedic attack or, or, or um, you know, uh, other kind of critique where you're not really lying about somebody, there's going to be a possible uh, liability. So that was what it was. I was one of the people that wrote the some of the friend of the court briefs. And to, to everybody's surprise, it ended up being a, a unanimous ruling in favor of uh, Larry Flint, who later became friends with Jerry Falwell. And the two went on a college tour together to talk about the case. And on one of those occasions, I was with them and I was the moderator between them. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> so... Um... Larry Flint had a bit larger than life, uh, you know, persona and depicted in movies. What was he like? So he was actually, I'll say this about both, both of these people. Behind the scenes, they were affable, friendly, uh, unpretentious. So they were each showboats. They were each con artists in a way. Uh, and I'm not saying that in the sort of the literal sense, but Jerry Falwell made a, you know, millions and millions off of his uh, television uh, programs and his, his intersection of law and politics um, and was larger than life in, in that world. And Larry Flint, larger than life in his world, behind the scenes, both uh, polite, uh, funny, um, affable people, you people you'd be fine. I don't know. If, I don't know if Reverend Falwell would drink a beer, but you'd be fine to drink a beer with any of them. <laughs> Um, well, let's turn to uh, what brings you to Vermont, and that is you have just become the president of the Vermont Law and Graduate School, and the changes begin with the name itself. Um, talk about the changes ahead for what used to be known as Vermont Law School. Well, you've put yourself right on the on, on the on, on the main point there. the The decision which predated me, so it's not, I'm not the one uh, who, who came up with it, but I'm the one who will be charged with leading it, is to have two schools, the law school and the graduate school under one umbrella. 
And the law school's mission will be what its mission always has been, uh, to train lawyers who have a sense of the importance of using law to help others, to help the community, uh, particularly as to things like environmental law and restorative justice. And then to couple that side by side with a graduate school that will deal with policy issues, public policy issues in these same arenas. And I think there's great synergy between those two. I think it's gonna bring um, more robust enrollment um, to both programs and more uh, contribution to what I hope will be progress, both in the enormously important um, world of uh, the environment and dealing with the uh, global climate change and the never ending need for um, improvement and progress in the world of social justice and restorative justice. And as part of this, your uh, the school is launching its first online hybrid JD program, a hybrid law program, which is one of the first in the country, as I understand. How is that's, that going to work? And, and is that going to be as good as in-person legal training? The, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, hybrid programs uh, exist in, in a, a number of American law schools. Uh, they started a few years ago with a, a, a two or three, and now they've been expanded to, I think, about eight or so schools around the country. Um, and so th the idea is part of your legal education will be online, but it will not be static. It'll be interactive. Um, and part will be here in Vermont in person for short bursts of time. Um, and the central uh, in-person experience there will actually be in Burlington, not in South Royalton. Uh, so here's my e easy answer. Of course, being a lawyer involves interaction with other humans. And of course, there's nothing quite like being there in person. But you and I are talking right now. And we're not in the same room. And this has, we were able to talk perfectly well. During the COVID pandemic, I taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students, you know, half a dozen classes using Zoom. And in my view, uh, the the intellectual quality of that experience was every bit as good as in person. And I've now since um, the pandemic hit argued half a dozen cases on important issues in state and federal courts around the country, for, uh, you know, in this same kind of virtual environment. I like the idea of it being hybrid because there will be in-person experiences, but I think the blend will be useful and what it does is it opens the Vermont Law School up to people from all over the United States or even around the world uh, that want to get the value of the things we offer but can't be here for three years at a time. Finally, just to circle back to where we began and the repercussions of the Supreme Court decisions, uh, Vermont Law has long been known as one of the preeminent environmental law schools, and the Supreme Court has just made it clear that the ability uh, for uh, the government to regulate pollution, and for that matter, the whole notion of an administrative state. Uh, you know, one constitutional law professor I was listening to described it as the court has taken a sledgehammer to the administrative state, uh, the ability of the government to regulate um, environmental issues. You are now preparing the next generation of environmental lawyers in this environment. Um, I imagine a lot of them are feeling a lot of despair. Um, what, how does this change what you will be able to do at Vermont Law and Graduate School? Yeah, I, 
despair is never a good idea, you know, and, and times change and, and uh, political balances change and even Supreme Courts change. I think what it does is it shows the importance of the graduate school side of the Vermont Law and Graduate School or the importance of the two sides working with each other. Because now to get things done, you're gonna to have to be able to convince legislators. And sometimes that may be state legislators, uh, sometimes it may be federal, uh, but at least in the near term, the arena has shifted to the political arguments and the policy arguments. And um, then the ability to articulate those arguments in a way that is not polarizing and in a way that can get sides to reason with each other and sometimes to be able to compromise, sometimes be able to craft the, craft the legislation that will accommodate some of the competing interests, but still make progress. It's what's gonna, it's, it's what's gonna be, matter. You saw a little bit of that in the gun arena where Congress was able to pass um, for the first time in a long time, some progressive uh, gun um, re regulation regula uh, uh, in, in last week. And I think, I think that's where the, the, um, the focus will have to shift to some degree, at least in the near term, because you will not be able to get wins in court in the absence of some ability to, to connect what you're trying to accomplish with the text of the particular environmental law you're dealing with. Okay, I have one more final question, and that is, as part of the solution to the issue of the politicization of the Supreme Court, we're hearing a lot of remedies being floated. Uh, packing the Supreme Court, expanding the Supreme Court, term limits for justices. Um, are there are any of these things that you support or are there uh, things that should be considered that you think are reasonable approaches to reining in what may be a very long lasting um, impact that this conservative court has? So I, I'm not a, a, in favor of packing because uh, that will just be an arms race. And you'll end up with a court with 24 justices or something. So I, I don't think that makes sense. We know from Franklin Roosevelt's attempt to do that, that even the Democrats were against it because they thought it was a kind of cheating that the number nine had become ingrained in our system and we should live with it. Um, term limits would require a constitutional amendment because the constitution guarantees judges lifetime tenure. Um, so I don't see a way around that. I don't see how term limits could, um, could uh, uh, be reconciled with that, um, but that would that strikes me as different. That's you know many many states have to have those sorts of limits, and uh, I think that that's that doesn't have the same kind of arms race implications that um, that uh, simply adding more justices would. So I think it's I think it uh, I think neither, to be honest, is ever going to get anywhere. <laughs> I just don't. I, I don't see a constitutional amendment in this in, in our in, in, in this uh, world uh, dealing with this, and uh, and that's what I think it would take. And I and I think there'll there'll be too much um, hesitation, not just from um, Republicans but from many Democrats um, on the idea of adding adding members. So, I, I, what I think isn't so important. What I predict is more important, and I predict that you'll never see anything in either of those sorts of avenues actually come to pass. Hmm. Well, Rod Smola, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure. Take care.